So we are done with Joseph, as I said a couple of weeks ago. And now we are starting a sermon series on, I think, I mean, Pastor Woody and I were talking about it, and I think the theme of sermons for the next couple of few weeks is a theme on sanctification. And sanctification, basically what it means is, is working out your salvation. It's working at your salvation. That's what it means. Sanctification is a never-ending work that God does in you and through you to, so that you will become more and more like Christ in this world. But the way that God sanctifies you is that you will need to work at your salvation. You will need to put in the work. As you put in the work, God acts within you to build you into like Christ. So the theme of the next sermon is in a few weeks is working at your salvation. Not working for your salvation, which is not true, but is working at your salvation. That's the theme of the sermons for the next few weeks. And my inspiration for, you know, these, this theme is it, it comes from different places. But God, by his grace, made me recognize, meet people and recognize patterns in the world. And that's what inspired me. One of the persons, one of the people, one person, I don't know what the correct grammar is, one person that inspired this sermon series for me is my, my son's friend at UVA. So last week, it was my son's 21st birthday. I'm a parent of a 21-year-old, my goodness. And so I visited, me and my family visited him in UVA last week, and we got to meet his friends. One of his friends, um, her, she's a pre-med major, because of course they all are, right? Um, but she had a very specific vision for her career. She said she wants to be a pediatric psychiatrist so that she can help out kids with ADD, attention deficit disorder. And she says she wants to help out kids with ADD because she herself suffers from ADD. And she told me, I was diagnosed, she was diagnosed with ADD when she was in high school. And they gave her medicine, like Ritalin or something, to deal with her ADD. But she said she realized every, she takes, every time she takes the medicine, there are benefits to that medicine, but there's also side effects, which means it has effects on her body. And therefore, this wise 20-year-old girl said, I'm going to manage, I'm not going to just take the pills blindly, but I'm going to self-manage when I'll take those pills so that, I can, so that I can have the focus and yet not and limit the effects of the side effects. And she told me, I will need to manage my ADD for the rest of my life. She said, there, is, there, will no, there will be no point in her life, even if she's 70, 80, where she does not have to work on managing her ADD. Do you understand? Her self-management of ADD is her lifetime of work. 
It is a never-ending work as long as she's living in this world. There are work. That, that, that there are works that we need to do in this world that will never end, that will end when we die. All of us in America believe in the great retirement. Go to Florida, God's great waiting room, and play golf until we die. We have this negative vision of work. But there are some work that will never end. I was looking at a Japanese people fascinated me for the last month. They captivated my imagination. All my YouTube is about Japanese people. And the reason why they're so captivating is Japanese people, like generally speaking, they devote their lives into one craft. They invest their entire life perfecting this one craft. I saw a YouTube clip about this old Japanese guy, like in his 80s sleeping four hours a night in order to run his little ramen restaurant in Japan. He's not running his ramen restaurant so that he can save money to buy a vacation home in Hawaii. He's not, he's not running the ramen restaurant because he has grandchildren he needs to feed. No, he's simply sleeping four hours a night, working every day when he's 80, because for him, that's his work. Making ramen, quality ramen, over and over and over again is the work that he will do until he dies. Because that's his calling. My wife, this is what I discovered of my wife this week. I was praying for my wife the other day, and I heard the voice of God saying, you got to work on loving your wife more, buddy. I go, okay. So I try to, because God calls me buddy. So I tried to love my wife. And what I discovered while I tried to love my wife is this. She is always a musician, and her work in music will never end. She will never stop listening to music, classical music. She will never stop analyzing classical music. She will never stop playing classical music. She, she, her analysis, her interest, her work in music for whatever form they come, that will never end until the day she dies. There is work that God has called all of us to do until the day we die in this world. That work is called obedience to his commands. If you are a Christian, he has called you to work on your salvation over and over and over again until the day you die. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not working towards their salvation. Who is not, not toward, I'm sorry, who is not working on their salvation, at their salvation. Not for salvation, but working at their salvation. You will continually need to work at it. Work on your faith over and over. Just like the Japanese guy. 
Raymond guy, just like my, my son's friend, you are called to work on your faith over and over and over again until you appear before him. That's your calling in life. For some reason, Christians have this weird theology thinking that once I'm saved, I don't have to do jack for God until he, he calls me home. It's weird. We think, oh, once I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior in middle school, and until I go home to, to be with him in heaven, between those, in the in-between times, I don't have to do anything for him. I can live my life for myself. I can use my money for me. I don't have to work on my holiness. I don't have to work on my fighting sin. I don't have to do anything for him in this world. I I don't have to put any effort for God. That is a dangerous misconception. Many years ago, I I had a Christian friend, I suppose. She was saved, she said, when she was in middle school because she raised her, I'm going to say, she went to a retreat when she was in middle school when the, when the preacher said, who wants to accept Christ, come up. And she came up. And from that moment on, she believed herself to be saved. And the, but when I was talking to her, she said she was seriously contemplating having an affair with a married man. And I go, you can't do this. Christians can't do this. You can't do this. Her reaction to me is, how dare you question my salvation? I accepted my Lord Jesus Christ when I was in middle school. God is going to send me to heaven. That's where, that was a response to me. How dare you tell me what I cannot, cannot do? I'm saved for crying out loud, she said. But I think that's an extreme example of a common theme. I'm Christian, I'm saved. Therefore, God expects nothing from me. On the contrary, it is the quite opposite. I think we have the misunderstanding of this kind of God's calling for obedience because we have a misunderstanding about salvation. Okay? We have a misunderstanding about salvation. And this is a very important thing that I'm going to teach, say to you teach you, and, I, and well, it's so important that I'm going to repeat it over and over and over again for the next four weeks. Salvation, first and foremost, is a gift from God. It's true. Romans chapter 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, it is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God. Paul is very clear. Every part of salvation is a free gift from God. You cannot save yourself. The only way that we are saved, it is through the gift and the mercy of God. That is undeniably true. But we need to understand something. Salvation, though it is a free gift of God, is divided into three dimensions. 
there are three dimensions to salvation. Understand me? Three dimensions. The past, present, and future dimension of salvation. Are you with me so far? The past dimension of salvation. I got this from John MacArthur, by the way. The past dimension of salvation is called justification. Justification is this. For those who have faith in Christ, God has changed your status in his eyes. You were once a sinner, but in Christ, you have, you, your status in God has changed from sinner into saint. Before Christ, you were the enemy of God. But because Jesus Christ has died and has resurrected for you, and if you have faith in him, the enemies of God has changed their status in the eyes of God to that of a son. Do you understand? Justification is when you have faith in Christ, your status has changed from a sinner into a saint, from an unrighteous person to a righteous person, from an enemy of God to the son of God. Once you have faith in Christ, that is set. Are you with me so far? Justification is once and for all accomplished condition that was accomplished through Christ. The third part, that's the first part of dimension of salvation. The third dimension of salvation is glorification. And glorification is when Christ returns, we will be resurrected. We will have resurrected bodies and souls. And we will look like Jesus Christ. That's glorification. Look, on Friday, first time in four, no, first time in my career as an adult, I got Veterans Day off. I, I don't know what my partners were thinking, but he gave us Veterans Day off. All right, yay. How do I celebrate Veterans Day? I went to the National Gallery of Art, the East, East building, East, East floor of the National Gallery of Art. And the East floor of the National Gallery of Art is full of modern art. And what I noticed about that modern floor of the National Gallery of Art, for me, when I was looking at those arts, I was filled with two things. Appreciation for the beauty of the art, for the art. But second, the sadness of the artist who painted the art. Because the east, east wing of the National Gallery is modern art. Modern art is postmodern, surrealist, post-World War II type of art. And these people are very depressed, very disillusioned by the, by the condition of men. And they express their art to express that condition. So I look at their art. It's very beautiful, and yet it is very sad. 
And then I thought about the resurrected reality that we will experience. When God resurrects, when we are glorified, we will inhabit this new, we will inhabit new bodies. And within our new bodies, we will, we will inhabit, we will, uh, what will contain within us is this amazing beauty without sadness. What will, what will be within us is we, we will have this resurrected body, and what will be within us is clarity of truth, clarity of purpose, clarity of love, Clarity. That's glorification. When Christ returns, we will be raised up. We will, be, we will have glorified bodies and, and, and souls. And we will be like Christ. That's the third dimension of salvation. Justification. God changes your status from sinner to saint, from enemies of God to a son of God, and glorification. That's the first dimension of salvation and third dimension of salvation. The middle dimension of salvation is what we are experiencing in this time and space. And that dimension of salvation is called sanctification. That's what we're going through right now. What is sanctification? Sanctification, it, God is transforming you into the image of Christ more and more. But what is interesting about salvation God is involved in your sanctification. God is involved in your transformation here in this earth. But the way that he transforms you in this earth, it is through your obedience. That's why Paul says in verse 12 today, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He is describing the work part of your salvation in this world. Working out means, another word for working out means completing what you already are. That's what it means. Is that what it means? Yeah. The idea is keep on working out to complete who you already are. So work out your, working out your salvation, Paul is saying, work at your faith so that you would become more and more like Christ. Working out your faith involves your effort and my effort. God uses your efforts, your obedience, to work in you, to bring about Christ in you. That's how you become more and more like Christ, through obedience. Example is this, and I don't want to make any of you feel bad, but there are those people during COVID who participate, who continually participate in the life of the church, who lived obediently, 
who came faithfully to Sunday worship, who walked with the Lord privately, who faithfully attended small group. And I'm sorry to tell you, if you haven't been doing that, but there is a vast difference in the quality of the faith to those who live obediently like that and those who have not. And I'm not saying this to be mean, but as an illustration of the point, God used their obedience in these areas to bring about Christ in them, bring about maturity in them more and more and more and more. Whereas people who have not obeyed him in these areas. I'm sorry to say, it seems that their faith is flickering out dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. The way God works out your salvation, the way God works out his image in you, it is through, through your obedience. That's Paul's main point in verse 12. We think we have this wrong idea that if we go to a church that offers up a better product, if praise is better, if the sermons are shorter, right? If, if, if the coffee is better, oh, that's impossible. No one has better coffee than we do. I can say that for a fact. But I don't, if it's more convenient for me, if a product is better for me, then I will grow. Well, I understand your sentiment of thinking that way. That's not biblical. Because God always works out his sanctification in the context of your obedience and mine. Jesus is clear. For those who have been justified, for those who have been called, changed status from sinner to saint, from enemy to son, and those who will be glorified in the future, these people are, there, are his genuine disciples. And, the, and his genuine disciples will obey him in this life. The evidence of your justification and your future glorification is your obedience in this world. Matthew 7, perhaps one of the most challenging verses in the Bible. Jesus said, Many people who claim to be my disciples will come to me on the judgment day. Many people who claim, to be, who, belong, who claim to belong to me will come to me on judgment day and say, Lord, Lord, look what I've done in your name. They say, Lord, I felt so intimately connected with you. I felt you in my heart. The word Lord, Lord is usually reserved for people that you have intimacy for. So the fact that they call Jesus Lord, Lord, symbolizes the fact that they think they have this emotional connection to Jesus. Lord, Lord, I have this intimate connection with you. Lord, I've done this for you. I've driven out demons for you. Lord, I performed miracles for you. Lord, 
I prophesied for you. I felt you. I drove out demons for you. I did miracles for you. I prophesied for you. And Jesus said to them, I have no idea who you are. Because you're, my, not, you're not my disciple. And the reason why you are not my disciple is because you have not obeyed me. Our Lord's definition of a true disciple, our Lord's definition of those who have been justified and those who will be glorified is those who will obey him. In the mind of Jesus Christ, there is no such a person who, who truly belongs to him and, not, and yet not obey him. His words are clear. Jesus says this, whoever keeps my commandment is the one that loves me. Whoever keeps my commandment is the one that loves me. John chapter, first John chapter 4. You can say that you love me, but if you do not love your brothers, you don't know me. You don't know, you don't know God. That's what 1 John chapter 4 is. John 15, remain in me. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you will bear much fruit. But if you don't, if you're a person who doesn't bear fruit, Jesus is saying, you will be thrown out into the fire. There is a calling, a call to obey. Once again, I know for the, maybe for your entire life, you assumed that to be a Christian means believing in a certain set of doctrines and looking back to a particular experience you had when you were a kid. And I'm not diminishing those experiences, and I'm not diminishing your feelings. But Jesus' word is clear. If you are my disciple, you will obey me. This is one of Paul's main points in Philippians chapter 2. What is Paul getting at in Philippians chapter 2? What is happening in Philippi? There are many reasons. There's three main reasons why Paul wrote the letter to Philippians. First reason, the Philippian Christians were being persecuted. So in order to encourage them, he wrote this letter. Second reason why he wrote the letter is because there were false teachers in Philippi trying to teach them strange things. To combat strange teachings, Paul wrote this letter. But third reason why Paul wrote this letter is because they were within the church of Philippi, there was infighting. Christians were fighting each other in the church of Philippi. Church of Philippi was not a mega church. There was no such a thing as a mega church back in the day. These are first century Christians. 
Maybe church, our side a little bit bigger. And they were fighting. They were fighting. They were judging each other, finding each other unacceptable, unwilling to forgive one another. They were about to implode internally. That's why Paul in Paul wrote chapter 2. What does he say in chapter 2? He reminds the Philippians, look, do nothing out of selfish ambition. I know y'all are fighting. But remember, do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit. But in humility, count others better than yourself. Let each of you not look onto his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You guys are fighting, but Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Treat others better than yourself. Fine advice. But this is the punch that Paul gives. The reason why you shouldn't fight, the reason why you shouldn't be, you should be, you shouldn't be selfish, the reason why you should consider other people better than yourselves, the reason why you should serve other people Paul says, it's because of who your Lord is. Paul says, in verse 5, I think, have this in mind. And this in mind means have Jesus Christ in mind. Who is Jesus Christ, Paul says. He was, he was part of the Trinity. Positionally, he was God. But he abandoned that position in God, within the Godhead. And he became a human being. Not only a human being, but a servant. The eternal God became a servant. And he served others. To the point of death on the cross. The God, you should, Philippians, you should consider other people better than you. You should, other, you should look, up, look after their own interests as well as yours, not only, not only yours, because the God that you believe in, like Rob sang today, is a humble servant who gave up everything to die for you so that you'll be set free. Paul is saying, Philippians, working out your salvation in this world involves imitating Christ like that. One of the clearest calling that God has given you to live out in this world is to, is to imitate Christ in your relationship with other people, especially your brothers and sisters in the church. God's calling is not to have the warm and fuzzy feeling when you worship him, but clearly God's calling is to imitate the service and the self-sacrifice and the forgiveness and the love of Christ in your relationship with other people. 
especially the people in this church. And that is a hard thing to do. Let's be incredibly real here. People, and including Christians, are not easy. They're not easy. And they will hurt you. And they will disappoint you. They will. Just like death and taxes, that is an inevitable, absolute certainty. People will hurt you. They will cut you. They will disappoint you, especially the people in this church. And your calling, Christian, the way you work out your salvation, Christian, is to day in and day out striving to love them and forgive them as Christ did for you. That's his calling. Someone asked me about forgiveness. How many times do I have to forgive? The same person? Maybe the calling is to forgive the same person every day for the remainder of your life. There are certain people that you are called to forgive every day for the remainder of your life. It's true. There are people that will never get better. There are people who who will always hurt you. There are people who always disappoint you. And even if you try your best to love them, they will never get it. They, They just are. I have them. My mom has them. My mom has been complaining about the same friends who disappoint her for the last 50 years of my life. Every time I go to Korea, she talks to me about this person. Even now, she talked to me about this person when I was in grade school. Why would she tell me when I was in grade school? I don't know. Bad parenting, perhaps. But the same person that she has an issue with when I was in elementary school is the same person she has the same issue with when I'm 52 or 51. And... PJ's elementary school, PJ's advice, is the same as the 51-year-old PJ's advice. You need to strive to love and forgive them every day. Forgiveness and love is not a once big time event. It's an everyday event. It is. It is. Forgiveness is not a Hallmark Christmas movie where they hurt you once and there's a great reconciliation and you feel love for that person forever. That's Hallmark Channel Christmas movies. The reality of human life is the same people hurt you over and over and over and over again, but you need to strive to obey them and love them like Christ over and over and over again. That's your calling. That's how you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Maybe they will never get better. Even after you die, maybe they'll never get better. Maybe they'll always be a disappointment to you. Them changing is not up to you. What's up to you is to strive to forgive them on a daily basis. Have this in mind. Forgiveness and love is done on daily dosage. That's true. There are people in my life that I have to forgive every single day for the last 20, 30 years. There are a few people in my life that I have to forgive and love every day for the last 20, 30 years. That's true. You can read about it in my biography when I die. 
There are moments where I love them. I feel loving towards them. There are. And there are moments when I hate them. And I let God know in my prayers, Lord, I hate this person. Have you, heard, have you prayed that prayer? I hate this person, Lord. Even though it's up and down, I know his constant calling for me is to love that person every day and forgive that person every day. What is interesting in my life is as I strive to obey him in that way, I see him work out his miracle in me. I see him more clearly. He's really real to me. He's not only real to me when I hear a great sermon. When I hear a great sermon, my mind rejoices. But it doesn't really change my heart. What changes my heart is that as I strive to love and forgive that for those people, God's showing me so much of himself and of me. The way he perfects your faith is this constant obedience. Especially your obedience to the people who hurt you. Jesus says, what is the point of loving you who's really good, loving people who are really good for you? What is the point of loving people who are good to you? What's the reward in that? Love your enemies, Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm all about loving my enemies. You are not like, you are not Christ-like when you love people who are good to you. That's not being Christ-like. That's being like the world, right? Oh, what is to be Christ-like? It's to love those who mistreat you. There is no other way for you to grow in Christ but through that kind of obedience. Look, every Thanksgiving, I spend it with the same group of people. There's a surgeon, there's an architect, there's a director of the World Bank, there's a professor at George Mason University. There's a lawyer, moi, and there's a musician, my wife. We get together over wine. We talk about politics. We talk about science, yada, 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 yada. And we feel really connected. We are in the same age group. All of us, we're like maybe two or three years apart. All our kids go to UVA, right? And last year they said, let's start a church. And I go, yeah. They're like me, education-wise, socioeconomically position-wise. They're my peeps, yo. What do I have to have in common with a college, with, 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 with June, with Tungbin? What do I have in common with, with, with all these people who have babies? Yeah. But if I only appeal to those people who are like me, 
who I agree with. How is that the gospel? How is that imitating Christ? If I forgive people who are only forgivable in my sight, how is that imitating Christ? If I can only love people after they remorse and repent before me, and then I forgive them, how is that being like Christ? Right? It's an impossible thing, really, what God has called us to do. Because it is the most natural desire, human desire, to cut people out who hurt hurt us. That's the most natural desire in us. But know this, God is involved in your sanctification. Verse 13, Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul understands the impossibility of what God has called you to do. You cannot possibly love and accept these people on your own power and strength. You cannot. But God gives you the desire to do so. He does. Understand this. The desire to love and forgive people, it doesn't doesn't come within you. The big mistake that we have, we think the ability to love comes from within me, that I have the power to love people and forgive people. It does not come from within you. Paul is clear. It comes from the Lord. God's energy needs to be within you to even for you to want to obey him. These people that I have a hard time loving, sometimes I love them, emotionally love them, sometimes I hate them. But because God is ever before me, he always persuades me to to go another day trying to love these people. He really is. that's That's how I know he's in me. His energy is always, always within me to say, love them, forgive them, pray for them. When I listen to his energy, I am able to do so. What do you do when you have no energy to love these people on a daily basis? You cry out to God and says, God, I don't have it within me. I don't have it within me. I hate this person. This person is so wrong. Help me. If you honestly cry out to him, he will give you that desire. Once again, know this. You cannot be like Christ until you obey him this way. You cannot be like Christ. We're going to talk about next week. Until you remain in him in his word, you cannot. You cannot be like Christ unless you put an effort into obedience. Because sanctification works as you obey him. Let us pray.